chapter 19, and number 5 in our outline, the last part, the reminder of redemption. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, that they bring you an unblemished red heifer in which is no defect and on which a yoke has never been placed. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be brought outside the camp to be slaughtered in his presence. Next, Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide and its flesh and its blood with its refuse shall be burned. The priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. The priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward come into the camp and the priest shall be unclean until evening. Now the one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. It is purification from sin. Get this picture. This red heifer, this unblemished, unused, unyoked red heifer comes in They take it outside the camp. And by the way, chapter 19 of Numbers, this is the only time we see this ordinance, this sacrifice of the red heifer. It has not been mentioned before. It's mentioned here for the first and only time. They're to take that heifer outside of camp, slaughter it outside of camp, burn it completely outside of the camp. They add the scarlet and the cedar wood and the hyssop and they cast it into the middle of that and it burns up with the heifer. And then they take these ashes, gather them up, place them in a specific, a special vessel that they later developed for this and kept it in a clean, safe place. But it was to be used for purification. How so? They would take some of these ashes and mix them in water and that became a symbol of purification for sin. Read on. Verse 10. The one who gathers the heifer shall wash his clothes or the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It shall be a perpetual statute to the sons of Israel and to the alien who sojourns among them. Verse 11, the one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. This is not a tangent, this is connected. That one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water. That is, this red heifer ashes purification water. And he shall do it, watch this, on the third day and on the seventh day. Might be getting some hints here as to what this is about. And then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died, and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off, probably getting executed, cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law. When a man dies in a tent, everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. Every open vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. Also, anyone who is in the open field touches one who has been slain with a sword or has died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. Then, verse 17, 
For the unclean person they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification from sin and flowing water shall be added to them in a vessel. The ashes of the red heifer mixed in with water. Verse 18. A clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the persons who are there and on the one who touched the bone or the one slain or the dying naturally or the grave. Then the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day Again, and on the seventh day, and on the seventh day he shall purify him from uncleanness, and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and shall be clean by evening. But the man who is unclean, and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly, because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. So it shall be a perpetual statute for them And he who sprinkles the water for impurity Shall wash his clothes And he who touches the water for impurity Shall be unclean until evening Furthermore Anything that the unclean person touches Shall be unclean And the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening I want to read all the way through that Now listen This is incredible This reminder of redemption. Following this horrible rebellion, we get taken back to the priesthood who are reinstated, who are reinforced, who are called back to their role of reconciliation. And then immediately following that, we are given this idea of a red heifer and water for purification. It's an incredibly unique sacrifice. Now you may have seen things as we read through. Let me point out a couple things before we stop tonight. This unique sacrifice speaks directly of Jesus. Clearly of Jesus. And maybe in some ways that you haven't seen, the red heifer is a picture of Jesus. Verse 2 tells us it was to be unblemished and with no defect. The first Peter 1.19 speaks of Jesus as that lamb unblemished and spotless. Anytime you see unblemished and without defect, it speaks of Jesus. It points to Jesus. But there's more. This red heifer is one on which, verse 2 tells us, a yoke has never been placed. What does that mean? How does that tie into Jesus? Gang, Jesus, like this red heifer, has never been driven. He was never manipulated or directed by man. He was never used by man. In his life on the earth, there was never a single time when someone used Jesus for some other purpose. He was always in control. John chapter 10 verse 17 says, For this reason, Jesus says, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Who raised up Jesus from the dead? Jesus did. By His authority. He had that power, that right, that ability to raise Himself. He didn't need help. An outsider, being God, He raised Himself. John 19, verse 10, Pilate said to Jesus in this famous conversation, He said, Do you not know I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Remember what Jesus said? You don't have any authority except what's been given to you from heaven. Jesus, and John's great about this, by the way, if you read through the Gospel of John, especially the last week of Jesus, and the crucifixion and resurrection, John points out very clearly that step by step, every inch of the way, Jesus is in control. Never driven, never directed by men. He only did what he came to do, what he set out to do. Now, verse 3 going on, another picture shows us more of Jesus, that this offering, and this is the only one, this offering was to be done outside the camp. 
just as Jesus was taken. John 19, 17. He went out bearing his own cross to the place called this place of the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. Golgotha is outside the city, or was outside the old city. Through the horse gate, which later is called the Damascus gate. They went out that gate outside of the city, and there, in the outskirts of Jerusalem, outside of the camp, so to speak, Jesus was crucified. He was sacrificed, just like the red heifer is taken outside of the camp of Israel and sacrificed out there. There's more. This is the only sacrifice also that was not sacrificed by the high priest. This was the only one where the priest was not engaged in the sacrifice. The last part of verse 3 says it's taken outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. In whose presence? In Eliezer's presence. But wait a minute. How about Aaron was the high priest? Aaron is the high priest. Eliezer is one of his sons. In the same way, you might remember there was a high priest who had just recently stepped down from his position, a man by the name of Annas. And Annas had a son named Caiaphas. But it was neither Annas nor Caiaphas, in the same way that it would neither be Aaron nor Eliezer, who actually performed the sacrifice. It was the Romans in the presence of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was there, but he didn't do the job. In the same way the red heifer was sacrificed, it wasn't the high priest, it was someone else who did it. He just observed. He was just there. It was in his presence. Same thing with Caiaphas, the high priest. The Romans did the job as he stood by. The red heifer, furthermore, was to be burned, verse 5 tells us. Hide, flesh, blood, everything. Completely burned. In the same way Jesus was completely consumed by the wrath of God completely consumed, overwhelmed. Larry, we were talking about this just the other day, how when Jesus went to the cross and he hung on that cross, the pain was not the physical pain. Gang, he only hung there for six hours. Most people crucified would hang for three days and the pain would be excruciating even beyond physically what Jesus endured for those six hours. But the pain Jesus endured on the cross was far beyond what anybody would endure because he felt the full weight and fury of the wrath of God and it consumed him. That's why he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was absolutely consumed by the weight of the sin in the world and the absolute wrath of God. And Romans 5.9 says, Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. What about the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet? We've seen this before. John 19.28 tells us that after this, Jesus, knowing the things that had already been accomplished to fulfill Scripture, he said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch of hyssop and they brought it up to his mouth. What was it for? Well, the hyssop on that branch and the sour wine would mingle and mix and would be kind of a numbing agent, a drug, literally. They give this to people who are hanging on crosses so that they would numb the pain so they could hang there longer. It was part of the torture. Jesus rejected it. He refused it. And it says, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The cedar wood here in this picture of the red heifer is the cross. It's a picture of the cross. The hyssop, a picture of that numbing drug they tried to give Jesus. The scarlet is a picture of the blood that poured out of Jesus. And it's an amazing picture. The red heifer portrays it is a picture of Jesus Christ in his crucifixion, in his sacrifice, in his death. But wait, there's more. Because the red heifer is not only a picture of Jesus, it's peculiarly feminine. 
Now, if this is a picture of Jesus, this makes no sense whatsoever at face value. It's a heifer. A heifer is a female, not a male. Jesus was a man. He was the son of man. He was masculine. He was a guy. A guy's guy. You know? This is the one who, who took on the Jewish businessmen in the temple as he drove them out. I mean, he was a tough guy. And he's portrayed by a red heifer? A heifer? What's the deal here? How can this possibly speak of Jesus? I just mentioned this for one reason. We live in an age where, interestingly, there is a resurgent push especially in our culture today, back to what is called the sacred feminine. Maybe you've heard of it. The sacred feminine, which was huge in Babylonian paganism. The sacred feminine, which is the centerpiece of Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. It's the focus of books like The Jesus Papers, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and other books that are all over the shelves right now, and people are gobbling them up. The sacred feminine, it's the logical end of the feminist movement, and if you happen to be a feminist, I apologize, I'm not trying to be offensive here, but the reality is there is a drive, a push back to this idea of the feminine divinity. And it's pagan. And it is not biblical. All these books are attempting to undermine the Bible, claiming that Jesus and Mary Magdalene got married, that they had a special sacred daughter, that this divine feminine was produced in her and continued on. And all of these books and all of this thought misses a grand and glorious truth that is hinted at here in the Red Heifer, this idea of the feminine sacred. Listen, ladies especially and gentlemen as well, Jesus is the sacred feminine. Now let me explain what I mean by that, but let me say it again. Jesus is the sacred feminine. And what I mean is this. Ladies, the perfect example for your lives is not Mary. The ultimate example, the ultimate person to emulate in your life is not Martha or Mary Magdalene or Tabitha or Sarah or Miriam or Esther or Ruth. The ultimate person for you as a woman to find your femininity in is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is not only the perfect man. He is the perfect person. He is the perfect one. He is everything that any man could ever want to be. He is a stud. He's warriorly. He's tough. But he's everything that any woman could or should ever want to be. Bouncing kids on his knee. Weeping over Jerusalem, expressing incredible compassion and a depth of love. What do you say about Jerusalem? How long I have, I have just longed to gather you under my wing as a hen gathers her chicks. And so this red heifer is perfect to express a side of Jesus that is important for women as it is for men. That he is the perfect example. He is the life that we are all called to emulate. He is the example for all of us. Which I believe is part of the reason Paul says in Galatians 3.28 There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ then you're Abraham's descendants heirs according to promise. Something else here. The red heifer. Not only is it a picture of Jesus. Not only is it peculiarly feminine but the red heifer is prophetic. Prophetic. This is interesting. I kind of tossed this back and forth about whether I'd share this, but I think I will. The first book in the Quran states this, and I quote, this is out of the Quran. 
Whatever nation shall discover the ashes of the red heifer will dominate the world. Interesting. Whatever nation shall discover the ashes of the red heifer will dominate the world. Now Islam, you may know, means submission. But it's submission by domination. That is the attitude of Islam. This verse would be of concern for Islam because the Islamist would be about world domination. Not by spreading a gospel of love, a message of salvation, but by spreading a military domination. So what are you saying, Rick? Do you believe the Quran is a holy writing? No. But I do believe it's a spiritual writing. What do you mean? I mean satanic. I believe personally gotten in trouble for saying this but I'm just, just going to say it again I believe that it is satanically inspired satanically driven I believe it says what Satan wants it to say and I believe he's using it I believe it's inspired to deceive and to wreak havoc but check this out from the time of Moses speaking of the red heifer to the time of Christ from Moses to Jesus roughly 1500 years or so only six red heifers were offered isn't that amazing? Across 1,500 years, they only had to offer up six red heifers in that amount of time. Well, how'd they do that and continue this ordinance? Because what they did is every time they offered one, they took some of the ashes, or all of the ashes, and they kept it in a safe, clean place. And any time they needed the water for purification, they took a little bit of the ashes, sprinkled it in the water, and they had it. And when they got low on the ashes, they would be watching for another unblemished, unyoked, pure red heifer, and they would sacrifice it. But they would keep some of the original ashes in there, they would mix in the new ashes, and the way of thinking here with the Jewish rabbis and teachers and, and leaders was that it's still the first red heifer. It just kind of passes all the way down. You mix in the ashes, and all, even after six or seven or eight would be offered, you still have a connection to that very first one. But only six were offered up to the point where Jesus came on the scene which is interesting to me because I believe Jesus is a picture of the seventh but six were offered and you know that in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed bad things went on things were lost and the ashes of the red heifer kept in a special vessel were also lost no one knows where they are there are all kinds of hints people thinking that maybe they got buried some believe they were buried at Qumran Others believe they're buried in, in Gedi, the caves there, or maybe down by the Dead Sea. People believe that it's possible they may even gotten, have gotten carried up to Masada and buried in a place up there, but no one knows. There are people who are spending their lives even now looking for the original ashes of that sixth red heifer. At the same time, there are other people who are looking for a red heifer today. Ranchers who are in league with, with uh, Hasidic Jews in Jerusalem who are trying to develop, who are trying to raise up another red heifer. In 2003, no, 2002, one showed up. And there was a lot of excitement, especially, you know, those of us watching for the return of Jesus, there was kind of a hype. And I even had that article and brought it into a revelation study we were doing back then and talked about, oh, look, they think they have found the red heifer. In 2005, they found a blemish. And so it's not the red heifer that everybody's been waiting for, that Jews were looking for. Dang, if more than three non-red hairs are found on a red heifer, it's blemished. That's how perfect it has to be. And so this waiting and watching for it, but, but what's prophetic about this? Listen, early in the Quran, in the first book of the, of the Quran, Muhammad wrote, Whatever nation shall discover the ashes of the red heifer will dominate the world. Now, that may be because at that time, Muhammad was still trying to appeal to the Jews. 
fact, if you read the Quran and look at it, early on, it says kind of some nice things about the Jews, but the further in you get, the worse it gets. Until it's about killing the Jews. Because Muhammad had a change of heart. He was trying to get them to co-opt into his new religion. When they didn't, he turned. So early on, it may just be that he's kind of giving a nod to something Jewish. I think it's more than that. I think it's a note of warning and concern. I think it's a satanically inspired note of warning. That says to Islam that you've got to keep an eye open for these ashes of the red heifer because Satan has a feeling something's going to happen with that. He knows when the real red heifer will come on the scene that all the enemy's domination will cease and desist. And he doesn't want to see that to happen. Now since the red heifer is considered considered prophetic again, people have been watching for these ashes and they've been trying to raise up a red heifer. All this has been going on. But listen, the rest of chapter 19 tells us what the ashes of the red heifer are truly for and the whole purpose and it comes down to one thing and one thing only the red heifer not only is it prophetic not only is there a connection here possibly with end times things not only is it peculiarly feminine it's not an easy word to say peculiarly not only is it a picture of Jesus gang but the red heifer is purification from death it's about purification from death from death verse 11 tells us again the one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days that one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day skip down to verse 18 a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and the furnishings of the person who are there the one who touched the bone or the one slain or the dying naturally or the grave then the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day the third day and the seventh day interesting if you come in contact with death you had to go to the priest you have to be purified by this water of purification mixed with the ashes of the red heifer and Jesus said in John 5.24 he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death and into life the deal is without the purification of our unblemished spotless Jesus we're dead as we talked about Sunday we are dead without him but we are alive in him and once we've been purified by him and this is just wonderful even against death then we can embrace the following words when John says we know when he appears we'll be like him because we'll see him just as he is and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure last thing the third day what happened on the third day? the resurrection and so purification, cleansing happened. The cleansing of the resurrection on the third day. What about the seventh day? Gang, the seventh day, the seventh day is the tribulation. There is cleansing in the resurrection. There is also cleansing in the tribulation. Two kinds of cleansing. One is a cleansing where the wrath was poured out on Jesus and he took it all and it consumed him completely that we might be saved. The other cleansing is where the wrath of God is poured out on the world and on humanity at the time. I want to be purified on the third day. I want to be of those who are saved by the death and resurrection of Christ. Not one who goes through a cleansing in the tribulation. There must be purification. The ashes of the red heifer provided for that temporarily until Jesus came. It's portrayed in this ordinance of the red heifer. And because of that we return to where we started again. We are a royal priesthood and we are responsible to our redemption. 
redeemed by Jesus, not by a red heifer, but by one who is perfect, who is able to redeem the purification we receive. It's by the blood sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And it's amazing, we have just seen in another chapter this picture of Jesus. The only reason this ordinance is here, gang, is once again to point us to Jesus Christ, who is our purification from sin. And as purified priests, gang, we have a responsibility to cry out, Hosanna. Hosanna. Oh, save. Let's, let's pray about that. Jesus, I ask first that every prayer we offer up this week will contain the word Hosanna. And we ask it tonight. Save, Lord Jesus. Oh, save. We know that there will be people here Sunday who do not know you. We know that there will be people here, Father, who are lost in their sin and have never made a commitment to you. And I pray, Jesus, save. I pray that by your power the right words will be spoken. Father, I pray that that what Frank shares as as he gets up to to share communion, as I get up to share in the word, Father, as the, the worship is shared, as conversations take place in this place on Sunday, I pray that you would save. And not just for Sunday, but every day may we be a priesthood that cries out, Hosanna, Son of David, Hosanna, come and save. In Jesus' name, amen.